Strangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Arrangers podcast. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Drew. I'm excited to present part one of this great interview with David Berger today. Yes, we have a very special episode today. For those of you listening, a fantastic discussion that Aaron and I got to have with master arranger, transcriber, jazz historian, David Berger. If you've ever participated in the Jazz at Lincoln Center competition, you've probably played some of David's Ellington transcriptions already. Some of his impressive accomplishments include directing the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra from 1988 through 1994, touring the world with his own jazz ensembles, releasing a number of CDs and instructional books, and composing and arranging music for countless artists, television shows, films, and symphony orchestras. David is one of the leading authorities on the music of Duke Ellington in the swing era, having transcribed a massive number of Ellington's pieces for jazz ensemble. With all that said, it's our pleasure to bring you this interview that we did with David. We hope you get as much out of it as we did. Here we go. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you about some of your books that you've published. You have a lot of great resources for both educators and arrangers. Would you uh, be able to talk about those a little bit? Okay, well, I've got several. Um, the uh, I have a, a book called Contemporary Jazz Composing and Arranging. And then I have another book out for high school band directors. It's called Democracy in Action. And it's a manual for how to do your job if you're a high school band director. And then I have one that's coming out very soon. It's the production is is done. I'm just waiting to get a quote from Quincy Jones to put on the back cover. Wow, that's fantastic. And that one is um, well. It's basically it's it's a collection of articles. It's blogs that I wrote last year, and I put them together in a in a volume. And um, that book is called what is that book called anyway? Life in D flat. Uh-huh. And aren't you writing a book that's coming out soon about writing up for vocalists? Yes, it's like the second volume of my uh, arranging and composing book. It's uh, it's how to write vocal charts. The book is already written, but we haven't put it in, into production yet. It takes a while <clears throat> once I write it to get everything, you know, all the music and Sibelius and looking exactly right and and <clears throat> each page uh, laid out exactly properly and then all the artwork and, and all that. And it takes a while. That's probably a couple of months down the road. We're also working on a book on how to, how to use Sibelius so that your parts and scores will look really good. Oh. Excellent. The way that it comes out of the machine now. Mm-hmm. You're you're a Sibelius user, I take it. Then, of course. Actually, I'm not. All the guys that work for me use Sibelius, and I ah. how to get the music to look. Although I don't actually do it myself. Do you still work pencil and paper then? I do, because I'm much faster at that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Do you go um, straight to a concert score or a transposed score, or how do you prefer to, to write? I go straight to a transposed score. I generally don't sketch. 
unless there have been a few times when I've just had a, a little idea and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. So I just kind of wrote it on treble bass cloth. And then actually there, there are a couple of charts. I've maybe three charts I've written like that, uh, where I never actually got to put them on score paper. I was, it just happened that they were easy to write out as, as sketches. Uh, and then I copied them, I copied the parts myself by hand. Wow. But normally I, um, I go directly to score paper and, and transpose when I was, See, this was the summer bet- uh, between my soft, no, uh, my junior and senior year of high school. I did a summer semester at Berkeley. Okay. okay. At Berkeley, they have you do all your scores in concert. So I did that up there. And then when I came back to high school, I showed one of my scores to my high school band director. And he said to me, I know you won't believe me when I tell you this, but someday you will have a copyist. And it will cost you 50% extra for him to transpose it. Ah, uh. Transposed it yourself. Because <laughs> I had already been transposed before I went away to Berkeley. I had wrote transposed scores. That's how I learned how to write. So right. it's just as easy for me to write a transposed. It was, in fact, I'm more confused when I look at a concert score now. Huh. Uh, I'd, I'd rather see a transposed score. Because to me, it looks like clefs. You know, right. If you're, if you're reading viola parts, you know, you expect them to be in viola clef. You know, alto. Right, right, That's right. When alto I see clef. an alto saxophone part, I expect it to be in the alto saxophone clef. Right, exactly. Exactly. So do you find that that helps you think more in the mind of a performer than, you know, thinking in their key? Yes, I try to write parts. This is really important. When you're starting off as an arranger, you're you're always asking people to, in fact, even when you're finishing as an arranger, you're always asking musicians to play your music for little or no money. And they'll they'll want (laughs) to do that if their parts are fun to play. Right. I always tried to write things that, that uh, thinking of the guys that I was writing it for, write things that they like to play and that would make them sound good. And, and also I would like to hear and the audience would like to hear and then make the band sound good. All those things are consideration. A lot of times people, and even Thad Jones, you know, he didn't write particularly good parts for the, uh, for anybody but the lead players. Wow, that's true. Uh, yeah, he didn't think about them. He said, "All I yeah. do is I plunk my hand down on the piano. I got this voicing, and I just divvy up the notes uh, as you know, in the order of of how my fingers are on the piano." <laughs> right. He didn't think from one chord to the next. Uh-huh. And I think his music suffers because of that. As much as I like his music, it's great rhythmically, and the lead lines are really interesting and swinging lines. But the inner parts are very difficult to play, and uh, and it makes it harder for the band to to sound good um, like if you play anything by ellington or strayhorn or gil evans uh, uh there's stuff uh, or even neil hefty or fletcher henderson they're, well they're in parts they move really nicely voice leading voice leading yeah, but a lot of people think voice leading just means that the, the parts move by step voice oh, means no. that everybody gets a good melody uh-huh uh, yeah generally you don't want the inner parts to to leap any more uh, than melody does. Say the, say the top part moves like a minor third. You generally don't want the uh, any of the inner parts to move more than a minor third uh, because that will draw attention away from the from the melody. Although sometimes you do want to draw attention away from the melody, so then that's what you do. Right. I'm a firm right. believer in that. There's there are no rules in writing music. There are principles. You know, there are um, principles of sound um, and, uh, you know, scientific principles. Like if, like, say, say you, say you write like uh, forte for, 
four trumpets. Well, let's say you write forte for a trumpet player. How many trumpets do you have to add so that all playing forte, the same di- dynamic level, for it to sound twice as loud? This is a question for you guys. Oh, yeah. Doctorates, right? You got doctorates. You should know this. I mean, uh, difficult. I, probably, I would say two or three more trumpets to, to double the volume. It's, yeah, you need four trumpets to, playing forte to sound twice as loud as one. All right, how about violins? At least eight. Ten. Ten, excuse me. Yes. And the other thing is that when, when you're playing in unison, you tend to play softer in order to right. blend. Right, uh-huh. So people think, oh, I'll just, uh, uh, I'm not going to hear that trumpet part. I'll just put another guy on it. No, actually, they're going to play that part softer. Sure. So that's not a really good answer. Octaves, right. they can play loud. But uh, when you put them uh. in the they're going to back off their notes if, if they're musical players. If they're um, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, opes, they'll play their notes loud, and it'll be out of tune, and it'll sound raunchy. But that's <laughs> pretty much how everybody plays now. Right. Uh, Sorry to say that, but that's that's the state of music. I I just wrote a blog today where I was quoting a uh, a saxophone teacher at a major conservatory who said there are two volumes on the saxophone, on and off. <laughs> that's very funny. You know, you touched on something, David, that we actually mentioned. That we we love to talk about the other. We don't like the idea of rules in music either, and so that's it's it's great to hear it. To hear you say it as well, yeah. There's there's guiding principles of sound, like like physical properties and musical properties, but it's hard to make hard and fast rules about what to do when and where. It's very empowering to hear you say that because that's that's something we earnestly believe in. Yeah, well, I always tell my students there's Duke Ellington's rule of music, and that's the only one that I believe in, and that is if it sounds good, it is good. Right. If it doesn't right. sound good, if you write something that looks great on paper but it doesn't sound good, it's not good music. You got to change it. You made some nice modern art. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of times you write something and you think, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense, and when you hear it played, it doesn't really work, and you don't know why. But your job is to get it. You know, it's not music until you hear it, and sometimes. I can write something. I think it's going to be good, and maybe it sounded good with my band. And then I take it to another band, and it doesn't sound good with them. I've got to fix it so it's uh, you know, each group that's going to play it has to has to sound good for them. And sometimes it could be really good players. I, I remember I had I had a, a chart that I wrote for um, when Thad Jones went moved to Europe, and Mel Lewis had me write some charts for his band. And one chart I had to like remove a, a measure because the way that Mel was playing, that measure just felt awkward. Uh, huh. It felt like we had one too many measures in the phrase. Huh. And then when we went to play that chart later on, a few weeks later with my band, um, I put the measure back in. It felt good with us. Yeah. You have to tell her the music to. It's funny because Mel Lewis's nickname was the Taylor, but you have to tell her <laughs> the music to um, to the players. Very important. So is that part of how you uh, how you got started learning how to write music when you were younger was was actually putting it in front of players or I guess could you maybe give us a little insight into what uh, got you started in in the business of writing music? See, I got a new piano teacher when I was in fifth grade. It was more serious, and there were two things she said. One, you got to memorize every piece you do, mm. which has been really good for me. Ever since I've been very good at memorizing things, because when I conduct, I hate to. I hate to have to look at a score. Mm-hmm. And also when I play parts, I'd rather 
don't play anything. I'd rather not have any music in front of me because I'd rather internalize it and play it from memory. And the other thing she did was teach me how to write Bach chorales, mm. which gave me a very good harmonic background. I knew all about voice leading and, and how harmony works. Then when I, w- I got into jazz, I guess the first day of junior high school, which was sixth, seventh grade, seventh grade, and I guess I was 12 years old. And got together a few of my friends after school one day. We got we wanted to play, and we didn't know what to play. We didn't huh. realize that yeah we we didn't know enough about about jazz or or music to be able to play without having music in front of us. So we were at the piano player's house and uh, playing in his living room, and he had this book of George Gershwin uh, piano you know, pieces written out for piano Gershwin songs. So he said, "Why don't we why don't we um, arrange these for us to play?" Uh, anybody know how to transpose for the instruments? And I said, yeah, I could. I think I could figure that out. Uh, so I was elected arranger. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I just basically took the stuff that was in that book and then divvied up the parts for the people that we had. And then I started studying jazz piano in, I can't remember, maybe ninth grade. And my piano teacher says, why don't you write a chart? I said, well, I don't really don't know how. He said, well, you know, I'll teach you. So actually, the first big band chart I wrote was uh, Moncton, Well, You Needn't. And I brought it huh. into my high school band, and they read it down, and everybody thought I was a genius. And not that the <laughs> chart was so good, but the fact that I could write a chart, you know, it's like dancing bears. It's not how well they dance. It's the fact that they can dance at all. So we played it, and it was okay. And then the, and then the band director said to me, listen, um, if you want, come after school tomorrow, and I'll help you fix it up. And so we spent about two hours, and he showed me all kinds of stuff. And um, I said, oh, I'll rewrite it. He said, nah, you learned enough on this one. Write something else. So I did. Mm-hmm. And then after mm-hmm. a while, I, I went to him one day, and I said, we're talking the 1960s. The published arrangements for school bands were not very good in those days. Mm, right, right. So um, I said, well, can't we play some better charts? And he says, well, what do you want to play? And well, I said, well, what about some you know, Count Basie or Duke Ellington? And he said, you think Duke Ellington's going to give us one of his arrangements or even sell us one of his arrangements? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, if you want to play something good, write it yourself. He said, whatever you write, I'll play it. So that's what I did. Wow, that's fantastic. In uh, high school, uh, we had a, every year we had a, we did a show. It was like a, it was called a pop concert. And it was like all the kids, all the kids and were auditioned to sing, dance, tell jokes, whatever they did. And then, and the, the big band, we would back up all the acts. And so when some, some a singer would come and they would audition. And if they were accepted, the teacher would say, go see him, meaning me. And then I'd ask him what song they wanted to sing and, uh, and what key they were doing. It. And they usually didn't know the key. So I would, I would play it with them and, and I would write their chart. And so there I was, 16 years old, and, and you know, doing what I do now. Wow, that's so fantastic. Very, very good experience. Yeah, I was lucky like that. And then I went yeah. to college, and I wrote a lot in college, and uh, I got to know Thad Jones, because I lived right near New York. You know, I was like 30 miles away, and I used to go to the Vanguard on Monday nights when he started his band. Uh-huh. And wow. Then we got friendly, and, um, and he was very encouraging. And... Uh, I went up to Eastman. They had a thing called the Arrangers Workshop in the summer. It's a three-week course that were mostly adults uh, took it. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was like 18 when I started, and uh, the first time I, summer that I went. Was Ray Wright teaching there at that time? Yes, Ray Wright was the uh, he was the main teacher, and uh, Manny That's amazing. Album. 
So I did that, I don't know, maybe eight or nine summers, and I also studied with Ray during the winter. That was a very good experience. All the stories I've heard about Ray is that he was just uh, very kind and well-spoken and a, a, one of the best mentors anyone could ask for. Uh, I, I second that. <laughs> very cool. Wonderful. Was, was Bill Dobbins there at that time or not yet? Well, Matt, the first time I was there was in 67. So Bill came, I think, in 74. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And Bill and I became really good friends. Um, we were in Chuck Israel's band, the National Jazz Ensemble. We were in that band together for a few years, and, uh, and we became really good friends. He's also a wonderful piano player and great writer, of course. Yes, and a great teacher. He's got some books out as well, and if you don't know the, um, the small group arranging book that he wrote, it's it's the best book on the subject. A Linear Approach, it's really a great book. Isn't it kind of where he talks about the concept of giving everyone their own lines, like you mentioned a little while ago? That's right. Basically, he and I both write like that, and a lot of people do. We set up goals. There are points, uh, you know, like... Um, there are chords that we voice out. I know how I want to voice this chord, and then a little, you know, a little while later, now I want this one. And then you connect those points with, with lines. But I also try to make the vertical sounds. They have to work for me as well. So it's right. kind of like doing a crossword puzzle, where words have to work in both horizontally and vertically. Would you say that your, you know, your studies of, of Bach when you were younger would be a, a very important contributor to that uh, process? Absolutely. And the more you do this, keeping in mind what the goal is, the easier it becomes. But the, the, main, the main thing to, that makes, it, makes all this stuff work easily is a good melody-bass relationship. I, I always said that I write the melody first, then the bass line, and then fill in the other parts. Because the relationship between the bass and the melody will determine the quality of the chords and also the progressions. Of course, of course. If it's a walking bass, is the is the entire bass line important to you, or is it mostly just the root in a say it's one harm one bar, uh, excuse me one chord a bar? Is that or is it the whole thing that you think about? Uh, depends. Hmm. Usually, just uh, the the chord of the measure, or you know, it's like an F seven chord, but there's some the bass player is going F G G sharp A. Well, I don't really care about the G G sharp A in most cases, unless I'm going to use passing chords there. Of course, of ha- course, that could happen. You know, but usually when a bass player is walking in four, when he's in two, a lot of times that those those notes are are crucial. But when the yes. bass is in four, he's kind of in his own universe. He can play like, you could have like a measure of F and then a measure of G7. And you could go, he could go F, F, F sharp, F sharp, G. And those F sharps don't relate to anything other than the bass line moving grammatically up. The other guys are still staying on their F6 or F major 7 voicing, you know? It's kind of a beautiful thing. <laughs> or you go, the bass line could go, da, 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 da. F E F F sharp G could do that, uh, and we really don't care because you hear it as part of a moving line. Yeah, yeah. The bass, yeah. We just we hear the bass. Somehow the bass just doesn't really. He doesn't. His notes are are not really part of the rest of the band, although the band sits on that. And one of my big complaints when I 
uh, I just went to a concert the other day where the bass was amplified and and no good. You know, it's when the bass is amplified, he's interfering with everyone else. When the bass is acoustic, he's transparent, so all this stuff works. Once he's amplified, you lose the lower end of the band. I can't hear the trombones and the tenors and the baritone. And you know, sometimes the, the amplified bass is louder than the first trumpet. And that's, you know, really not good. I can't stand that myself. It's it's, it's a real problem. Also, the other thing is that the when the bass is amplified, the notes will ring, whereas if it's unamplified, they decay very quickly. And that's the reason, Gunther Schiller explains this in his early jazz book, the reason why we stopped using tubas and used string bass is so that we could get that decay. Because that allows us to hear all the other instruments and it makes the bass transparent. So this is kind of an interesting topic too, because one thing I wanted to pick your brain about is is the topic of band leading, since you've had so much experience leading your own bands and, and going to the studio recording, performing live. And one of the questions that I had was regarding recording. I was wondering if you have any specific philosophies on how do you record your bands if you have everyone kind of solo mic'd or if you prefer to have the whole band sound. Similar to what you're talking about with the bass, how does how do the acoustics play into um, the recording process for you? Well, I would love to be able to uh, do a recording with one or two microphones, you know, just... But old school. So that that yeah, really old school. And we actually we did we did a concert in Oslo about ten years ago, and a buddy of mine uh, recorded it using uh, just two microphones put like on a v, in a V. And everything was great except that we didn't get enough cymbals. The drums were in the back, and we just didn't get enough. Uh, so I mean, had we had like one more mic like on his cymbals, everything would have been great. That was kind of unusual, but I don't I don't record like that. And when we when we do like in a studio, generally everybody gets their own microphone. We've done it where with guys in a circle around microphones. Uh, I mean, I've tried every different way over the years, but we, the way we've kind of I think our all our CDs were done with the band kind of in a triangle so like i'm i'm conducting i'm in the middle behind me is the is the bass and the drums and if we have a guitar he's there too and they're like in a line behind me that's the bottom of the triangle and then one side the uh, to my left are is the brass section and the trombones are on the floor and the trumpets are on a riser behind the trombones and they're met in the middle by the the saxophones you know, at the top of the triangle is the uh, is one end of the sax, the uh, you know one of the tenor players on the right, on the far right. end, and then they make a triangle coming down to meet like the rhythm section, on. and then behind the saxophones we put the piano. Ah, interesting. Yeah, um, that's worked pretty well. Uh, the only problem is that the piano is kind of out of it, and right. he, he'll need to use cans but everybody yeah. else doesn't use cans so you like the sound of the band playing acoustically yeah we like to play acoustically um i find that when guys wear cans they don't listen to everybody else they only listen to themselves and they don't play well in a section they don't play dynamics they just play loud but when we play without cans we play the way we normally play which everybody's used to doing and so the piano player, he, he wears cans. And also, if we do, if there's a vocalist, the vocalist is going to be outside of that, and the piano player is going to need 
chance to hear the to hear the vocalist because very often he's got to respond to. And, and if that's the case, I'll I may wear cans. Uh, I'll wear one on one ear just to hear the vocalist. Sure, sure. Well, it it really gives it's a testament to how the how they used to record because you'd get such a full sound and a beautiful mix even with just one or two mics at the front of the band and everyone's playing acoustically and it it sounds great, you know, and you'd think more mics is better, but we sometimes lose quality and it doesn't get the right sound. Definitely. Um, Microphones are not a human ear. Uh, There you go. They're not as good as our ears. And if, if you, the problem is that the way they did it in the old days, remember those bands, they, they played, like 52 weeks a year, That's six true. or seven nights a, a week. They, and the, the personnel didn't change very much. And so they, uh, they really knew that music and they really knew how to blend. And also the rooms that they recorded in were really great, had really great acoustics for this. They would sit in a, in specific places, Ellington, he would have guys you you're over there, you're over there, and you know specific places in the room so that it would get exactly the sound. For instance, he had the bass up front, right near right near the microphone. So like when you hear Jimmy Blanton playing bass, he's right up near the mic. That that helps a lot. Basie, on the on the other hand, when you listen to his records, as great as Walter Page was, he was in the back, and so you don't hear him as much. The mixing is a another. Another issue. <laughs> you know, when we, you know, when we have all these mics, now we've got a mix, and then also mastering. I'm very particular about all that stuff. Right, I can only imagine. Well, you've spent so long listening to the the whole history of the music through live and recorded mediums that uh, I would imagine that uh, one would be very particular after listening to that much music. Yeah, well, I try to get it to sound like a live performance. That's my goal is that when you you sit in front of your speakers, that you you want to get as close as possible to the the effect of if you you were standing right in front of the band. And I do it from the perspective of uh, of where I am as the conductor of the band. For me, that to me that's that's the best seat in the house. Some people would say no, it should be should be further out in the audience, but uh, I don't like that. You know, too much reverb and. I like a little bit of reverb. I like it to be warm, but but not so soupy that I I lose a lot of the detail. So you mentioned that uh, one of the challenges is like is the fact that back in the older days, people would have the opportunity to travel with one another and, and play in the same group for so long. I mean, what's your experience? How do you kind of cope with that in the modern day in terms of leading your own bands? Yeah, well, for us, it's we've we've had tours um, where we played together for as much as eight weeks you know, doing eight shows a week. So uh, it got really together. Uh, that was ideal. Um, but a lot of, for a lot of our experience, it's been at most playing once a week in a club and the personnel not being steady. People send in subs because they have other work that uh, they need to take for financial reasons. And um, yeah, it's, that's difficult. But we've been together a very long time. Um, my drummer and lead trumpet player have been with me since 1971. Yeah, so that's, what, 46 years? That's fantastic. And most of the guys in the band have been with, with us since uh, we did the Nutcracker in 1996. 
So even uh, even if we're doing a gig where where half the band say there's eight subs, you know, the other eight people are going to they know the music so well and they know how we play that everything just falls into place. It's it's pretty good like that. Although we we need a few key people, you know it's hard when when our drummer's not there, it's really hard. That's that's crucial. But um, but, but we got you know, we have some good subs. That, you know, a number of our subs have have worked with us a lot, so that's almost as good as a regular. But uh, but of the regulars, you know, I, I've I've written the music for them, so you know it's it's like when somebody comes into sub, it's like we're in somebody else's clothes. You know, you're a size thirty six, but it doesn't fit exactly right. You know. Did you have the music in mind and uh, and pick players that you knew wanted to play your music? Is it uh, did you have the players and said, "Oh, I'm definitely going to write for these guys"? I mean, obviously, it's a bit of both. But um, how did that start out for you? Well, when we first started out in 1971, I was playing in a band, and um, and and they asked me to bring in some of my arrangements, and then a bunch of the younger guys in the band, and we were all like, you know, in our early 20s, and Mm-hmm. A lot of guys became pretty famous from that band. Uh, anyway, they they convinced me to start my own band so we could just play my stuff and not have huh. to play some of the other stuff. And so that was. And then I just started writing for those guys, and that was my experience. Right. And then, and then when I got involved, uh, so I would work with Chuck Israels, and then we so we were doing less things then. And then after I was with Chuck, we kind of got kind of back together again in the early '80s. But then when I got with Lincoln Center. I was about to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. I conducted that band from like um, you know, 80, 88 to uh, ninety four, and so I wasn't doing anything on, on my own at that time. Right around ninety, starting in ninety four, we put together we put together a few concerts to do, play some Ellington music, and then in ninety six, uh, I I wrote this show called Harlem Nutcracker. That's <clears throat> a choreographer came to me and he said he wanted to choreograph uh, Ellington's Nutcracker. I said, well, how about if we do like a full-length Nutcracker and we use Ellington's and Strayhorn's charts, which is a half hour, and I'll get another hour and a half from the rest of the Tchaikovsky score, all the other themes that they didn't use. He said, okay, right. that's great. So we did that and we, we, we toured that for four Christmas seasons. And the band that we put together to do that basically stayed together uh, and you know, some guys died and some a few guys left, but mostly I'd say about half that band is we're still together after twenty years. Wow. Pretty good. That's fantastic. That must have been quite an experience taking that Ellington Nutcracker and expanding on it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I kinda of saw myself as Billy Strayhorn, you know. It's, well, we used eight of the, the nine pieces. We didn't use the Movement. Actually yeah. Yeah, we originally did use the on track, but it got cut from the show. It was 31 minutes. Uh, and then I, I tried to write the rest of the stuff in this, uh, not trying to sound like Ellington so much, but just in something that would, would compliment. Compl- that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. That would feel all of one piece. Um, so some of the stuff is very Ellingtonian and some of and there's one piece is a, there's a time travel segment. That's about uh, nine minutes long. And it's very Coltrane-esque pretty far out it's very it's very free and um it's very different completely different and yet it seems to fit um yeah there's all kinds of uh, uh stuff in there but it's it was a, it was a real challenge uh and plus i i knew you know i, I had it's gonna it's music for dance so um i 
I had to um, make sure that it was telling the story, and also, you know, it's like I wrote I wrote a lot of a, a lot of the stuff, and the, the choreographer just 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 write all the stuff. I'll figure out where to, you know, where to put it. And then once we got some of it up, then we kind of, well, I need something for over here, and I need you know the I need collaborative eight measures dance. to get across the stage over here, and, and then this piece is I need a lot. I need here. Here's a dance. There's oh, there's, there's a big fight scene, and uh, and um, and that's so I took I extended like a, a one of the pieces that we had I wrote a four or five minutes of of music that that extended that it was already choreographed and so I he gave me a he videotaped it and I wrote it to the to fit the videotape wow so like writing for film so you, I know where all the all you know where the all, hits are that's it yeah. And also the tempo and everything, whatever. Where that was fun to do, and that that was the last thing that I actually wrote for the show. Uh, that that was written like a couple of days before uh, we went into and for, before we opened, actually. So that was very exciting. In fact, we premiered the show at Arizona State University in Tempe. I have a very nice theater there. I was literally just there <laughs> last week. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Gamage, is that the name of it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I remembered that after all these years. <laughs> what happened was we rehearsed there. We, the dancers rehearsed in New York for like six weeks or five weeks. And then we went with the drums and piano. And then we went out to Arizona. We picked up, I had to pick up the rest of the band there. Uh, uh-huh. I couldn't right. tell my New York guys. There wasn't enough of a budget to do that. The first oh, year. wow. So I picked up a, all these other uh, musicians and a choir. There's one number that there was a choir, and then we had all, all these kids that were in the show as, as dancers in a few scenes. What a process! <laughs> uh, yeah, it was amazing. So we had a week basically in uh, in Tempe, and we we rehearsed. And then the day before the opening, the power went out in the theater. So I never actually saw the second act before opening night. Wow, it was crazy. I was oh my totally goodness, blind. Oh. <laughs> Parts of costumes were flying off of people on stage. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. It was one of the great experiences of my life. Uh, after that, we we traveled all over the country. We did it in Brooklyn. We did it in L.A. We did it in uh, Ann Arbor and in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. We basically did like a week in each place, and then each year we we did more stuff and went to different places and ultimately um i got to use my new york band which i only had for one week the first year but ultimately i got to tour with that band oh fantastic what a guess yeah it was um i'm seeing you know writing when you're when you're a composer and arranger you know you're, you're always writing for instrumentalists and maybe singers but when you see your stuff like choreographed on the stage that's a whole other experience it's uh it's the ancient film, you know. It, it's it's the it was the medium to accompany theatrics before it was film. So it's it's there's some similarities, but there's some real artistic difference. Because it's the opposite. It's the music comes first, and then they and then they dance to the music. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas when you're writing for film, and one of my frustrations in writing for film is I write all this nice stuff, and then they, you know, it's like I did this film with uh, Denzel Washington. Uh huh. Scene and. Uh, the scene was like uh, maybe eight or nine minutes long 
in the, in the final cut of the movie, it's like maybe a minute and a half. Right, they cut up the music. music yeah, and all this choreography, you know, and uh, all the shot. You had great shots of the band and everything. All that got you know, from the cutting room floor. Right. Yeah. No, it's a drag for sure. Bummer. I mean, a few things got cut in the in Harlem Nutcracker. I think three numbers got cut. There was actually the. Um, there was one number, and this is a very odd thing. This rarely happens. So I was talking about that time travel segment. I originally wrote that as um, I started off in like 1920s style, and then and then it was like a blues, I think. And then the next chorus was like 1930, and the next chorus was 1935, and the next chorus was 1940, and it went like that huh. each chorus. And so it, it it went along with the vignettes that were that you were seeing, but I didn't like it. To me, it was too Mickey Mouse, sure, uh, uh, too disjunct, you know. And so, I told the choreographer, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in something completely different tomorrow." He said, "Oh no, I really like this." But I said, "Nah." I said, "No, no." Uh, I, really <laughs> I said, "I'm not gonna give it to you. I can't give it to you." It's just uh, uh, that never it's usually the opposite, you know. It's like you write something and they say, right. oh, we can't use that." Right. And you go, "Oh, but that's the best thing I ever wrote in my yeah. life." Yeah. <laughs> right. Of course. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, actually, one uh, number did get cut though that that bothered me. It was, uh, and this always happens. It was there were there were two actually there were two numbers for the choir. One in the first act and one in the, near the end of the second act. And the one in the, the end of the second act was really the better number. Mm-hmm. But when we did the our workshop, we found that the show was slowing down. We needed to get to the end faster. Uh, so number had pacing. To go. Somehow it got lost. I, I don't know what happened to it and um, oh gosh so i've never been able to do it again it was really good too. it was like a, a civil rights kind of um, lyric to it and it was real good oh well what are you gonna do we're gonna cut the interview right there because there was simply too much awesomeness for one episode so we're happy to bring you part two of our interview with david berger next time And remember to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch that next part of the interview, as well as all of the other exciting content that we have planned. We actually have content planned for the rest of the year, including some really exciting interviews, some score study, and some other really useful topics. Give us a review on iTunes, check us out on Facebook, and we'll see you next time.